One of the great challenges of life is to integrate our faith into everything. Uh, It is easy for us in our kind of culture to start creating boxes and segmenting our faith. That this over here is spiritual and this is something that God either isn't concerned about or wouldn't care about. Uh, I've told you often about uh, when we first moved out here back in 2009, my daughter wanted to plug into the soccer team. And I, of course, did the typical dad pastor thing and saying, why do you think the Lord wants you to play soccer? She looked at me with this sort of disgusted face and said, dad, God doesn't care about soccer. And, and I said, well, but he cares about you and if you're gonna play soccer, he cares about how you play soccer because he cares about you. And, and, and yet we all do that, don't we? There's all aspects of life where we look at certain things and we go, clearly this is a spiritual element of life. Whether it's our personal devotions or uh, happens to be our ministry or what church we plug into, there's certain things that are just very easy for us to go, yeah, this is a spiritual issue and I really need to seek God and understand his will. There's other things that we would not think is spiritual. If you get up in the morning and go, Lord, what should I be wearing this morning? You'd probably think that person's like a little bit OCD and overdoing it. God doesn't care what you wear to work to a certain extent. Although we live in a world where everything is about self. How do you promote yourself? How do you wear power clothes to impress people? And so we can get into uh, understanding that life has its implications and what our choices are. This morning, I want us to continue this thought that we've been dealing with about living with a clear conscience in the world. And we're going to deal with a subject that at first you're kind of going, really, this is the spiritual topic you want to talk about this morning uh, because this doesn't feel spiritual at all. And yet, there are things that really land in our own lap in terms of the implications of how we look at life, how we look at our spirituality, and what's our worldview when it comes to looking at all kinds of responsibilities, and many of them I want to challenge you, that we would not really consider spiritual need to be. And so the text we're in is Romans chapter 13, verse 5 through 8. So I want to begin by reading that. If you have some Bibles and want to follow along, that's great. Uh, We'll have the text up here behind me if you're new to us and want to follow along. And so it begins this way. Paul writes, Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid, and he's talking about governing authorities, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, or because of this idea of conscience before God, you also pay taxes. Sounds like a really spiritual subject, doesn't it? For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. And then he jumps into verse 8 by saying, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. I would probably recommend not using that as a verse to say, well, I'm just going to love the government, therefore I don't need to owe you taxes. Uh, That probably won't work. And yet, verses like this have been used by lots of people to say, in my own conscience, I'm not going to do what everybody else is doing, whether it's paying taxes or revenue or other kinds of things to government or other kinds of like things. But in this process, let me try to explain a couple of things. Taxes, obviously, are not new. 
If you go back to the first century, you'll discover that taxes were very much part of the life of the citizens and the culture of that time. Herod the Great is infamous for taxes, uh, taxing people in a ruthless way. He had extravagant tastes. Uh, he had great ambitions of doing all kinds of things, and it was not only things that benefited the citizens of where they lived, but it was also for projects that he had that didn't affect the people where they lived at all. Uh, he built cities, he built ports, he expanded the economy, and many of that thing, those things were tremendous. But he also levied a lot of revenue from people in their environments to help do projects other places. He wanted to build his kingdom, and he wanted to impress people with what he had. Uh, Ethnarch Archelaus in AD 6, uh, Caesar Augustus actually deposed him, often related to things like taxes and impositions on the citizenry that was extreme, and it was, as, as we would note, uh, some of them were atrocious in terms of the things that he did. And so he was disposed and gotten rid of. Roman rule kept taxes very much to support the whole war machine that they had going. And it was very common for them to tax uh, states and regions on top of whatever taxes they were already paying in order to support their projects and what they were doing. Uh, Tacitus, the... Um, had oppressive taxes in terms of dealing with the people of his citizenry. So it's not new. There were bribes given, there were luxuries that were extended, there was uh, a lot of different things done for families that we see happening today that we would revolt back, that there's certain luxuries and privileges that people that were ruling got that nobody else did on the backs of people who were paying taxes. Uh, I remember when Barb and I were out in Pennsylvania, we went around to see uh, did a walking tour of uh, downtown um, Philadelphia, looking at some of the historical sites, and I remember the guide telling us, yeah, you can go into this thing because your taxes are already paid for it. You don't have to pay for a ticket to go in there. You can go into, into Independence Hall. You don't need to pay because your taxes have already paid for it. And he kept saying over and over again is that these are free. And then when we went to go into Independence Hall, we realized that we needed tickets. It didn't cost anything, but the tickets were all gone, so we didn't get a chance to go in there. So I'm glad my taxes are working hard for that particular thing. But as we begin to think through this, we know that taxes are not new. And they're part of normal life because we belong to a larger community. And the sustainability and the viability of that depends on taxes. But I wanted to, to notice that in this particular element, Paul says, listen, it's not just so that you'll pay the penalties and get punished for not doing certain things, but you do it as a, an act of conscience towards God. And, and he's saying literally that, there's, that a clear conscience fulfills earthly obligations. That a, a clear conscience before God, if it's sensitive to what God wants us to do, is that for something as tangible and unspiritual as we might think about it, is that Christians with a proper conscience is committed to paying taxes. Now, it hasn't always been the true. I mean, there are different situations in life where people have refused to pay those things and not fulfill earthly obligations. But the idea for, for believers is that paying something like taxes is not so much an obligation of the government as it ought to be a sense of conscience towards God. Living in such a way that we become a light to the world, even when it comes to the idea of paying taxes. 
Now, it may sound strange to us, but paying taxes is not necessarily an obligation that he states here because you're in agreement with the authority. The basis for paying taxes is not based on the morality of the government. Jesus said very little about government, and he had to deal with the Roman government. He had to deal with the authorities of the Pharisees and scribes, and Jesus said very, very little about the idea of, listen, don't do that because these guys are corrupt, so don't, don't, that, that's, by that basis, your conscience can say, I'm not going to participate. There's very little in the scriptures that say paying taxes is not something we should do whether we agree with the philosophy of the governing authorities. And taxes is an obligation that's not based on their fiscal responsibility. Um, it's, the idea here is that Paul writes to them and says, listen, I assume that you're already paying taxes and that you need to be giving and paying those obligations, those debts, as a regular part of life. And he says that there's basically four reasons. One, it's to avoid judgment. Uh, if you don't pay, then you're gonna get penalized uh, if we're not doing those kind of things. The other one is that the governing authorities, as we've seen from the text, are God's servants. They are overseeing a certain citizenry, a certain group of people, and in order to protect and provide and build infrastructures and support the sustainability of that group, then God, the, the governing authorities are God's servants. He tells us, as we've mentioned, that this whole idea needs to be motivated by a conscience towards God, not just whether we agree with the government or not, and it's for the collective sustainability of the community, that larger group of people that we belong to. So I want to just at least identify there's different kinds of debts or obligations, because you'll notice all the way through the text is that whatever you owe, whatever you're indebted to someone about, you need to pay it. He says it all the way through there. He talked about taxes, he talks about revenue, it talks about respect and honor. He says, if you owe any of these things, then you need to be involved in paying them. The first kind of debt or obligation we have is what I would call passive. The passive obligations are those in which they're imposed upon us, and we all know those. We live in a world where the citizenry pays taxes to a governing body in order to build and look after infrastructure, to look after emergency funds, to whatever. You know, you know the drill. But those are things that we have very little control over. I, I got curious about looking at this and I thought, well, I wanted to take a look to see what our national financial status is. Now, I took a peek at it this morning. It was kind of interesting watching a immediate active uh, sort of billboard of our taxes and our debt. Uh, right now, this morning when I looked at it, our debt is at $28.5 trillion. And it's funny looking at the, the billboard there because you can just see the numbers just like spinning away like this. It's kind of like, wow, that's a little terrifying. But our, that's, that's part of it. Uh, the largest budget items that we deal with is Medicare at $1.3 trillion, Social Security is at $1.1 trillion, and defense and or war is $720 billion for, for sustaining that. If you really wanted to get a feel for it, the U.S. national debt in terms of where it is, the debt per person or per citizen, $85,518. Debt per taxpayer is $226,794 as I looked at it this morning. I'm kind of like, 
you know, if I could figure out how to pay that, would that mean I don't ever have to pay any more taxes? Would that work for you? Not that I could do that, but it sounds interesting in any event. Um, and it made me think back that when Barbara and I were in Pennsylvania, we had a, our meetings out in Lancaster, which is Amish country. And as we sat there, we learned from the regional director that was out there just a lot more about Amish. As many of you know, they're a fairly reclusive community. And they don't have any of the kinds of debts or obligations that we just naturally assume we have. For instance, um, the Amish don't pay into Social Security. They, they're not interested in that unless, of course, they work for somebody where that's outside of their community and then they have to pay Social Security. But they don't pay real estate, state and federal income taxes, county taxes, sale tax, or they do pay some of those things, but they don't collect Social Security and they don't get unemployment and they don't get welfare funds. They're a self-sufficient, sort of self-contained a group of people that are creating their own system within the system so that they're not indebted to anybody or they don't owe on any of those bases. Now the challenge of that, of course, is that you have to become really reclusive. I don't know how many of us are okay with riding buggies and horses or having homes that don't have electricity plugged into it, but that's what it takes in order to do that. Now you'll, I know that there's different groups that like to go out into the country and put up solar panels and not be attached to the system. But th this is a group of people who've taken this idea seriously and they've tried to be so self-sufficient that they're not really involved in connection with the world at all. But the requirement of, that Paul talks about here is not only this is why you pay taxes, but he also talks about if you owe respect and honor to people, you need to give it. Now respect simply means the idea of, of admiration. It's talking about deference or esteeming people. The idea of honor has the recognition of an assignment or a status. So it would be based on either their position or it'd be based on uh, who they are and their credibility and what they've done. People develop a certain reputation because they either do good things and they do things that are influencers and for the good or they do it by their position. The, the challenge of that is that sometimes respect and honor gets into allegiance and worship. I don't know if you remember Daniel chapter two and three when Daniel and his buddies were held captive by Nebuchadnezzar, they were in a foreign land trying to figure out how to live and Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of the big statue, you know, the, the figure whose head was of gold and then it had arms and, and a whole body that was constituted of different material. And he couldn't figure out what it meant because it was a dream that God had given to him. And Daniel finally is consulted on this and he basically comes back and says, well, listen, Nebuchadnezzar, you need to understand that God has given you the permission or the right, and literally it says in Daniel chapter two, to be king of kings and to rule over all the, the nations, as it were, in that particular area and that God has given you all this control and power and authority, and he's made you the head of gold on this. And then there's gonna be nations that follow after you that aren't gonna be as strong as you, but, but God's predicted and prophesied that these are the nations that are gonna follow. And, and so the revelation came from God to Nebuchadnezzar. He used Daniel as his servant in order to interpret it. So this is God's truth. And then Nebuchadnezzar says, is, is astounded by this. He, does homage to David or Daniel. 
He makes him a, a high authority in the kingdom. And then he builds a statue and it, it's as a recognition of this. And if you're not paying attention to it, you go, wow, he's trying to recognize God's authority and he's trying to build this to remind people of God's word and what God prophesied. But then he turns the corner and he goes, well, hey, wait a minute, we are gonna play this national anthem and we want you all to bow down and pledge allegiance to this, which is more likely about him being the head of the gold of the figure than it is about God's word. And Daniel and his buddies go, we're not doing this. And you might say, well, wait a minute, Daniel. I thought this was God's revelation. This is the process it's going to take. Why wouldn't you want to recognize God's revelation by having people worship a statue that basically represents what God's going to do? And apparently, Daniel discerned that it's not really about God. It ends up being about Nebuchadnezzar and what he's doing. And so the, the command to bow down and to worship the figure was their sense of national anthem and pledge of allegiance. And they don't do it. I uh, couldn't help but think about the fact that we have our own Pledge of Allegiance. There's only two countries in the world that I believe have a Pledge of Allegiance to a flag. That's us in the Philippines. But it was created back by a socialist, Francis Bellamy, back in 1892. Uh, It only became formally the Pledge of Allegiance in our own country in 1945. And it was on Flag Day in 1945, so it wasn't that long, for some of you I know it's a long time ago, but for a lot of us it's not that long ago, where the only alteration to the original Pledge of Allegiance was they inserted that little phrase, under God. I had a uh, professor when I was in seminary say that for Christians, one of the things that's hard to discern is what's the difference between respect and honor and allegiance and worship? And he even suggested in some of our conversations that for Christians, you might want to, when you do Pledge of Allegiance, cross your fingers behind your back when you recite it. Because there's this discernment between is our allegiance to the flag and to our citizenry here, or is it to God? And the question that most people bring up at that point is, well, it does say under God. It depends on how much is under God. But, but one of the, the challenges of us is that it's important for us as Christians to live with a clear conscience that we need to pay the indebtedness, the things that we're indebted to, the things that we're obligated to do in this world, our earthly obligations, but there's a fine line between respect and honor and then allegiance and worship. And so it becomes a challenge in everyday life to know what kind of obligations do we really need to fulfill. Now we have lots of different kinds of obligations, personal obligations. We make promises and vows to people. Marriage is a commitment of vows that we make, that two people make to one another, that are supposed to be for the rest of life. And we know that that doesn't always work. We are challenged with what does it mean for us to fulfill these, what you might call debts or obligations that we make on a personal level. There's other things like in our faith community and ministry. What commitment to a faith community meant 20 years ago is very different than what what it means today. I, I remember us talking with the Awana program leaders, not only ours here, but people who are part of it, and they go, you know, people's commitment to something like Awana is like, really different now. 
If you're lucky in a month to get a, a family or kids to show up to one or two times that month, you're doing really well. Because their indebtedness isn't to, I need to show up to this, They've got all kinds of other things going on. They've got sports and music and other hobbies, and so their obligations are split and divided. And, and so if you can get kids to show up even twice to an Awana program, you're doing really great. We face the some ch- same challenges at times, even in terms of ministry. We've got a church in many ways that is fantastic in terms of volunteering, but even as we look to the fall and trying to see what steps we can take, the, cha- the biggest challenge is, can we get volunteers to actually make the commitment to serve in different areas? Because the culture is encroached on us is that oftentimes we don't like making commitments as Christians because we like to keep our, keep our options open. We don't want to get tied into anything because now I'm obligated to show up. Well, I get that. But, but it even affects the Christian community now. And, and, and at times, we don't even have problems once we make commitments as to whether we break them or not. I mean, we've dealt with that for years in terms of ministry. You try to plan things and get people to commit to it. It'd be easier to pull the, rhino off a, uh, uh, the horn off a rhino than to sometimes getting some people to make commitments. Why? Well, because they're not sure and they've got other obligations and something better might come along and they're just not sure whether they want to. And I know by my own experience, it's like, I don't know, do I really want to do that? I'll wait. And so the the personal obligations and indebtedness and following those through is really a challenge. But there's also public obligations that we have. Work contracts, Community responsibilities, if you live in a, in, a, in a district or a housing area where they have association dues, we have responsibility to pay those. Property taxes. Well, some places in the world they don't have property taxes, but last time I checked, we do. And so we pay those, for the most part, I believe. Business and personal loans, we, we make a contract. We have obligations, and we've, we've built our lives at times on borrowing money, which the Bible would say may not be the best idea. I was uh, chatting with Dennis Dane. He's one of, they're part of our community here, for those of you that are new, and he's an accountant. He deals with taxes, and he's bailing me out of some of my own tax dilemmas this last year, not because I was trying to cheat anybody, but you know, that certain uh, equipment I was using kind of put me in the, in the bad spot. But he was telling me that like most professionals as an accountant, he was taking exams to keep up his licensing and his credentials. And he had, had to, this year he was telling me he had to take two exams in order for, to work on some credentialing or licensing and he took an exam and he worked through it and worked through all the questions and it was fine, he completed it and I assume it was successful. Then he went to the second exam and he uh, opened it up and he noticed that it was exactly the same as the first exam. So he called up the licensing people or whoever were dispensing these things and he says, do you guys know that your second exam is a complete duplicate of the first exam? And they went, wow, we didn't know that. You're the first persons that mentioned it. What was, what's unique about it is that it was an ethics exam. So it makes you kind of wonder what everybody else is doing. But, but 
it's easy for us to kind of go, well, it's their problem and their mistake, so we're just going to blow through it. And it's easy for us to cheat in our own obligations because we can get away with it. And we do that in our personal lives when we make promises to people and then we bail on them because something better comes along. We struggle with it in terms of the pressures that are put on in terms of our activities and marriages. But the, and we can't go into all of them, but biblical obligations would simply say this. When you make a vow to God, which may be a little different than what we're talking about, do not delay in paying it, for God has no pleasure in fools. So we need to understand that whether we're making direct vows to God or whether we have obligations, if we're going to live with a clear conscience, I believe God says, don't be a fool by not paying these off. The statement, Lord willing, has been one of those statements that has been abused by Christians forever. James talks about this in terms of you know, people who are going to put a business plan together, go into a town and execute it and make a profit. And he says, if that's your attitude, that you're just going to go in and make this happen, you're just arrogant. And he's kind of like, what? really? Are you kidding? And he follows it up by saying, well, what you ought to be saying is, if the Lord wills, here's what we're going to do. It doesn't mean there's any less commitment to executing the plan but he goes on to say very simply, look, you don't know what your life's going to be tomorrow. You're just a vapor that shows up here for a while and then you're gone. I don't care if you live 70 years or 80 years or 90 or 40. As far as God is concerned, you're here and you're gone and you don't control all those variables. And so the idea is not making a commitment, but listen, if the Lord wills, I'm going to put my heart into this, but God could change the circumstances and it may not happen. And so as we begin to work through this process of, of our obligations and our debts that we're to pay, we need to remember that even many Christians feel a greater indebtedness to loyalty to themselves than we do to Christ. I'm, I'm out to protect my time and my space and my activity, while at the same time we've got ourselves so busy that we're running ourselves ragged and into complete exhaustion because we're indebted and obligated to so many different things that we're killing ourselves in the process of fulfilling all these obligations. We often have a greater boldness and courage to our own accomplishments, achievements, and success than to the mission of Christ. And it's interesting because when he hits verse 8, he says almost something that sounds completely contradictory to what he just started talking about. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Now his statement probably shifts from being more the, the citizenry and corporate idea and the public idea to more personal, but the idea it raises the question is that a clear conscience has as few debts and obligations as possible. Well, wait a minute, didn't he just say we have obliga earthly obligations and debts that we have to be engaged in? Absolutely. But the fewer we have of those, the, 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 then the less encumbered we are. 
And sometimes the pressure and the stress and the anxiety and the unhappiness of life is because we've saddled ourselves with so many obligations and so many commitments and so many debts that we have to pay, not just financially but relationally and emotionally, that we're just wearing ourselves out running from one thing to the next. (laughs) When we were in Pennsylvania, one of the Reds who lives out there was saying, that the reason why that a lot of the Amish, and in, in terms of his personal discussions with them, they don't have electricity is because they don't want to get to the end of the month and feel like they have to owe a debt to anybody. So they, everything is manpower. And, and the question is, how are we supposed to think about it? Well, let me try to... Th- throw the theory into some real life stuff. And you wanna, you wanna see this not so much as good or bad, but the dilemma that we have to f- figure out in terms of how we live. Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians 9, I'm sorry, I think it's 1 Corinthians 7, I think I got the wrong chapter there. But he's talking about marriage. And I want you to just see how he verbiages this, not to put restraint or guilt upon people, but to help understand the difference between obligations and debts. For though I am free from all, I don't have any obligations or debts to anybody, I'm free in Christ, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I become as a Jew in order to win the Jews, to those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself Uh, without the law of Christ, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I become one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win others. So from a missional, gospel-centered perspective, Paul says, hey, I'm free. I I don't have any obligations to anyone, but I'm going to choose to use my freedom to be a servant of others so that I might win people to Christ. That's his defining gospel-centered focus in terms of how he's going to live and engage his community and the people he knows and, and, and all that is involved in that, that's his focus. And so he reminds us that one of the, the greatest obligations or debts that we can have as Christians is to using our freedom to invest in the mission of Christ. But there's challenges to that. 1 Corinthians 7, he talks about marriage. I want you to be free from anxiety. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, assuming that the single person is committed to the Lord. Sometimes being single can make people more selfish because all they have to care about is themselves, but not necessarily. He's, He's assuming that a person who's single is committed to the things of the Lord, and how to please him. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. Does that mean marriage is a bad thing? No, of course not. But we need to understand that the idea of obligations and indebtedness means that if I get married, now my interests are divided, and I've got two things to look after now and try to do well, rather than just one. The Bible honors marriage. But he's saying if you've got this extra obligation, now you've you got to look after these things and do it well and do it biblically in addition to the idea of the things of the Lord. And he sort of separates those, but now I've got two things to look after. And the unmarried woman or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. 
Now, notice what he says at the end. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. And so it raises the question as a principle that if we get too many obligations and, and, and indebtedness things going on in our life, then it divides, it can easily divide our commitment to Christ even more. I talked with uh, one of the guys, I, I, I think he's a single guy, uh, was at our tournament and really a nice guy, I like him, but he said, yeah, I've been, I'm busy seven days a week. I said, wow, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm playing softball and I'm playing baseball. And he's in like three baseball leagues and two softball leagues and doubleheaders on Sunday and games every single night of the week. I went, wow, how do you keep up to that? <laughs> this is amazing. But I believe he's single, so he's got, he's got nothing else to do. Which it, but that's a lot of stuff. But we can do the thing. I mean, we as parents want our kids to have all kinds of experiences So it's easy to get them into 10 things and 15 activities. Why? Because we we thrive on giving kids experiences. But at the same time, then we start talking about, well, you know, gosh, I haven't picked this thing up like in three weeks because I just don't have time for it. My prayer life kind of stinks. Like I fire a couple things off for meals, but... You know, last time I really spent meaningful time in prayer of the Lord because I've just got so many obligations and I'm indebted to doing so many different things. I just don't have time for this kind of thing. And it, and it, it obviously makes sense that the more things we get committed to, the more things we become obligated to, then our interests are divided and divided again. Our culture thrives on a frenetic, workaholic, obsessive-compulsive lifestyle. And we have to be careful that we just don't automatically get swept up into it and having great experiences, but my spiritual life feels like it's in the ditch. That my obligations here aren't to to further the mission of the gospel so that I can move alongside people so that I can share Christ and the hope of the gospel with them. It's just, hey, we're just having a lot of fun. We're living for experience sake, not for the sake of the mission of the gospel. Winston Churchill paid tribute to a young man in the Royal Air Force who guarded England during the war. And he said this, never in the history of mankind have so many owed so much to so few. The Battle of Bostonay represents one of the bloodiest actions in World War II. A monument pays tribute to the heroism of the U.S. 101st Airborne Division. And he recognized the incredible sacrifice that they had made. One of the illest people picked up on this and they made the comment when thinking about the cross of Christ that we could easily say, never in the history of the universe has mankind owed so much to one person. We don't want the Christian life to deteriorate into just debts and obligations. But we need to realize that Christ sacrificed his life not in order to create a successful life in the context of luxury and experiences and I get to do whatever I want. 
Because there's no person that we owe a greater debt to than Jesus Christ himself who sacrificed his life so that he can call a people out to himself for the mission of the gospel because we live in the midst of a lost humanity. And it's very easy for us to become so consumed and to our obligations and our debts, to our hobbies and our practices and our weekends and our, that, that our commitment to Christ can easily be undermined because we've, we've just got so many debts and obligations in life that Christ has simply become an afterthought. One of the greatest devotions and commitments and our allegiance is to Jesus. And as I stand before you this morning, I'm constantly reevaluating this week is, is it so easy to get caught up into the busyness of life that we may be doing a lot of things for God, but we're not in relationship with God? It doesn't mean there isn't opportunities. You've heard some of the opportunities for soccer camp and VBS and great ways to invest in eternity. But we also have to share our lives with unbelievers. Do we have friendships with people who don't know Christ and we're meaningfully making time to move alongside them for the sake that we might be able to win them to Christ? I want to encourage you and challenge you that Paul's great statement here about doing it for conscience sake is that we need to live with a clear conscience, that our life isn't simply driven by the culture, that we make wise and insightful decisions about how we use our time. What are we going to invest in? Because as much as we'd like to think that we can do everything, we can't. And I don't know if the goal of parenting is to see if I can give my kids so, all the experiences possible as much as to get them zeroed in about how much Jesus loves them and can use their life for his glory. Is there anything wrong with experiences? Of course not. Is there anything wrong with marriage? Of course not. But we at least have to have the discernment that the more debts and obligations we have, the more we divide our interests. And Paul's statement is still absolutely the one we have to cling to. He doesn't want to throw a guilt trip on anybody and neither do I. He doesn't want to just put restraints on people and neither do I. What he wants to promote is undivided, sincere allegiance to Jesus. And that's the question I want to ask you this morning. Is Jesus Christ the central, defining, motivating person of life or is he an afterthought in midst of all kinds of other obligations and debts. Who are you really living for? What really motivates you? And I, I want to encourage you to consider the reality that sometimes we get ourselves so spread so thin that Jesus just becomes an afterthought. Pray with me, if you will. Father, we... sometimes struggle 
with compartmentalizing our life so much that we conveniently exclude you from a lot of different things in life. But it seems to me what Paul is saying is that in some respects, everything is spiritual. Whether it's paying taxes or loving my neighbor, if we're gonna live with a clear conscience that all of life needs to be motivated by Jesus, that the gospel needs to help us see the advantage of taking things that would seem to be completely unspiritual and we need to see how you can use those things to help glorify you and win people to Jesus. Father, we wanna confess at times we've got our life so spread so thinly that you've become more of an affectation, you've become an afterthought, you've become a safety net rather than the foundation and motivation for life. And I pray that we might be able to come before you and not only recognize what the Spirit of God might be pressing his finger on about things that we may be involved in that have become more of a distraction than they have a catalyst, but help us to have at least the courage to make adjustments, to prune things out of our life that have been for more for our kingdom building and our entertainment than the mission of Jesus. Thank you for your grace and your mercy, for your constant love in our lives and your constant prodding to say, to really call us to a life of influencers in a desperately lost world, in a broken humanity, that we might by all means possibly win some. And for this we pray in Christ's name.